Good afternoon, everyone. Is this on? Good afternoon. I want to apologize, first of all, to those of you who are sitting over there. We are going to use the lectern here rather than the pulpit as the place to speak because the lighting here makes it impossible to get a decent video picture if, if someone stands in the pulpit. We normally don't have this problem in our morning services here in Goodson Chapel. So we're going to speak from this location now. Um, it's, uh, I'm Richard Hayes, the Dean of Duke Divinity School. It's my honor to introduce here very briefly to you Professor N.T. Wright. He is here along with a number of other very distinguished colleagues, uh, New Testament scholars and theologians who are present with us uh, for a conference that is currently taking place on the book of Revelation, Theology, Politics, and Intertextuality. We have scheduled this one session of the conference as a public lecture event. We will have, uh, after uh, Professor Wright's lecture, a response by C. Cavan Rowe, who is Assistant Professor of New Testament here in the Divinity School. We will follow that by giving first opportunity to ask questions or give responses to the uh, participants in the conference who are here in the front rows. And then, as time permits, we will try to take perhaps a few questions from the audience, but we'll have to see how our time runs. I also want to let you know that uh, we will end this session at about 5 o'clock. There will be uh, an interlude, and then at 5.30 here in Goodson, there will be an organ concert given by Dr. David Arcus, who is the Divinity School organist, uh, which will last, I think, about 45 minutes and will include um, uh, an original composition, a Toccata and Fugue in D minor by Marianne Ploger, which was composed for the new organ here in Goodson Chapel on a commission. So for those of you who would like to stay and are able to stay, I certainly invite you to stay for that concert at 5.30. I'll mention that again at the end to remind you. So now... We, uh, we turn uh, to uh, N.T. Wright. Many of you I know will have read his work appreciatively. He is, has very recently, only about a month or six weeks ago, moved from being the Bishop of Durham, England, to the chair in New Testament and early Christianity at the University of St. Andrews, Scotland. He is uh, the author of many, many books and uh, has had a, a huge influence in England and the United States in the way many people think about the New Testament. So we're honored to have him here with us today. The title of his lecture is The Book of Revelation, Theology, Politics. I'm sorry, that's the title of our conference. The title of, <laughs> the title of Tom's lecture is Revelation and Christian Hope, Political Implications of the Revelation to John. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Richard, and thank you all for being here. It's a great delight and honor to be back in Duke and to have the chance to share some initial reflections, which is what they are for me on Revelation with you this afternoon. My primary title, Revelation and Christian Hope, would have appeared to many in earlier generations quite straightforward. Revelation is, after all, about heaven. 
though it does indeed say some complicated things about it, we gain an initial glimpse of heaven near the beginning of the book, and we work our way through to the celestial city itself, the New Jerusalem, towards the end. So in this straightforward but deceptive view, the hope is heaven, and Revelation is a kind of tourist guide to that destination. So ingrained is this perspective that more than one commentator recycles an old joke about someone who has written a commentary on Revelation and then finally breathes his last and is carried by the angels to the pearly gates. And there he is met by several other learned scholars who had themselves in their day written commentaries on the book, and they say, so, you did one too. You will find things very different up here. Now, as for... Uh, how that goes, is that really what it's about? As for political implications within that view, that can go two ways. If you say the hope is heaven, either you say that because we're bound for heaven, the rantings and ragings of bestial powers here on this earth is interesting but largely irrelevant to us, or you treat those bits as code rather than symbol and decode them so that they refer to particular movements within our own day, leading up to Armageddon and the end of the world, which will, of course, be next week or possibly the week after that. Now, when I say that this way of reading the book misses the point in more ways than one, I mean that it subverts the book theologically, politically, and intertextually, which are the focal points of our conference. And I suspect that one of the reasons for the comparative neglect of Revelation, in many mainstream Christian circles at least, has been a direct result of the embracing of that pseudo-theology as I see it, about simply going to heaven, which has been the staple diet of much Western Christianity, both Catholic and Protestant. Since I've sometimes been misunderstood on this particular topic, let me say I have no problem at all speaking about Christians dying and going to heaven only with the notion that that is the final destination. As I've often said, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. A glance glance at the last two chapters of Revelation itself makes the point graphically. Unlike many prayers and hymns, much iconography, and enormous unquestioned popular assumption, the final scene of the Christian Bible as we have it is not humans leaving this earth and going up to a place called heaven. It is the heavenly city coming down to earth so that heaven and earth are one, as the hymn says. And part of the reason for Revelation's sharp political content is that, again in contrast to the dualist escapism of much modern Western Christianity, the coming of God's kingdom on earth as in heaven is not, for John the Seer, something we have to wait for to the very end. It has already been inaugurated through the victory of the sacrificed lamb who is also the lion. The reason there is any question of political theology in this book is that Jesus is already Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He doesn't become that in some future, whether next week or next millennium. Those who hail Jesus as Lord and King need to learn what it means to bear witness to him in the face of the claims and the threats of other lords and other kings. That is the burden of my song this afternoon. And I'm going to approach that conclusion in four steps. First, I want to set the scene with some reflections on the vexed notion of apocalyptic. 
and uh, as you will have gathered, this is a paper for a conference. The paper is slightly longer than there is time to read out this afternoon, and some of the bits that I'm going to cut are particularly some of the discussion, detailed discussions of the meaning of the word apocalyptic. Uh, it's important, but I, I don't want to spend too much time on it in this presentation. Second, I'm going to look in more detail at the hope which Revelation offers and how it relates to the present vocation of the church as seen in the central chapters of the book. Third, I want to look at the unholy trinity of villains that emerge in the center of the book and inquire what sort of political profile they present and what sort of political theology they might engender. In other words, what it means for the church then and now to recognize their deceitfulness and to escape their clutches. And fourth, I shall offer some reflections on the place of revelation within the Christian canon of Scripture. So first, apocalyptic. The word apocalyptic and its cognates, apocalyptist, apocalypticism, etc., has been pressed into service in relation to at least three quite different sorts of thing. Actually, it's probably about 33, but I'm going to mention three. An experience, a literary genre, and a worldview. An experience, a genre, and a worldview. These sometimes overlap, but they should not be confused. First, and I believe foremost, the word can denote, perhaps should denote, a phenomenon in which someone experiences a revelation of things not normally perceptible, sometimes seeing, sometimes hearing, sometimes both. We know about this because they write down what happened, but the first meaning would then have to do not with the writing itself, but with the event itself, a revelation or unveiling. That's what apocalypse means. It means an uncovering of something that was covered up and hidden. And it can refer then to the spirituality or tradition which cultivates or hopes for such events. Some might call this a religious phenomenon, though our word religion is at least as misleading as apocalyptic itself. But at its heart, and this is very important, this kind of experience and the cultivation of such events presupposes at least within the traditions I'm going to be looking at, that reality is more complex and multidimensional than it normally appears, and that in particular, the sphere of normal human experience, call it earth for the sake of argument, is not separated from the sphere of the angels and their creator by a great gulf, but rather that heaven and earth, in fact, overlap and interlock. Now, the belief that heaven and earth could and sometimes did overlap and interlock is built into the very structure of ancient Israelite life, thought, and particularly worship. Israel's central symbol was the temple at the heart of the land. The temple was the place where the two spheres of heaven and earth joined, intersected. God had chosen to live there. The temple is central for John the seer, right up to the point where it disappears not because it was bad or stupid or irrelevant, but because its function has been swallowed up in the new, complete heaven and earth reality at the end of the book. The ancient Jewish prophetic tradition thrived on this overlap. Think of Elijah and Elisha. Think of Micaiah ben Imlach at the end of 1 Kings. Think of Isaiah, Ezekiel's strange visions, Daniel, the canonical climax of ancient Jewish apocalyptic Nothing in this whole matrix of Israelite and Jewish apocalyptic implies what people have often 
properly called dualism. Heaven and earth are different, they're distinct, but that duality does not imply an ontological incompatibility. Earth's inhabitants have gone their own way, done their own thing. Their rulers have horribly abused their power. But heaven's answer to that is not to pull up the drawbridge and then provide a backstair access for anyone who can get up there after all, but to reassert the claims of the God of heaven and earth on his whole two-sided creation. And this always involves conflict with the powers that have usurped his rule on earth, whether pagan or Jewish. The prophets who experience these visions and speak of them may be ostracized, they may be threatened, they may be punished, but they don't see themselves as part of a tiny little group waiting for the world to go to hell so that they can then be rescued or vindicated. And in particular, the prophets are not saying that the world of space, time, and matter is coming to an end so that something radically different can happen, generating huge antinomies and forcing readers to choose between them. Part of the problem of the day of the Lord in Jeremiah and elsewhere is that it isn't the day of the end of the world. Uh, you will wake up the next morning and it'll be horrible. So I don't, therefore, recognize the common antithesis between apocalyptic and prophecy, so beloved of an earlier generation. When we come to John's book, he declares up front that his work belongs in both categories, as well as that of epistle. So that's the first point about apocalyptic, something about the nature of the experience of revelation, of a point where heaven and earth somehow overlap and become translucent to one another. In the Celtic tradition, which some northern British Christianity partakes in, they speak of thin places, a place where the curtain between heaven and earth appears to be thinner than normal so that people can experience heaven uh, inflicting itself on earth. Inflicting is the wrong word. Um, um, well, maybe sometimes it feels like that too, um, but... but that overlap. So that's the first thing, the, the experience. The second meaning of apocalyptic is that of the literary genre that has come to bear that name. That's well known. I'm not going to say more about that, except that in some of the works of apocalyptic genre in the, uh, think of books like Fourth Ezra to Baruch, etc., we do detect signs of my third sense of apocalyptic, which is a particular worldview, sometimes called apocalypticism. I think that's a very misleading word because it kind of pulls all the different meanings into this one thing. Students in departments of religion and divinity and so on have routinely been taught that apocalypticism or the apocalyptic mindset is dualistic, sectarian, determinist, pessimistic, world-denying, looking to an immediate future, not for transformation or healing, but for rescue and vengeance. And this may be true of some of the works which use the apocalyptic form as a literary genre, but it seems to me that that isn't necessarily true, at least, of those in my first category, because it denies precisely that heaven-earth overlap, that strange open commerce between the twin halves of God's good creation, upon which the visionaries rely and which contextualizes and makes sense of their work. And here comes the point. I'm convinced of two things. First, John the Divine, the author of Revelation, seems to belong in the first category. He doesn't actually write uh, uh, something which fits all the marks of the genre that is often described as apocalyptic. There are many differences there. Um, 
But second, so if, if we come to John's book with the assumption that, oh, well, it's apocalyptic, so he's got the apocalyptic mindset, then we're begging the question. John is no dualist and no pessimist. In our modern sense, I believe he is no sectarian. But second, again rather briefly, this is a sort of a sideswipe for let the reader understand, the rather narrow band of thought that has taken up the word apocalyptic in some quarters of New Testament studies. I think of the great German Ernst Kesemann and his American followers Chris Becker and Lou Martin. I do not believe that they have made the case for their own fresh meaning of apocalyptic, either in its historical grounding or in its exegetical fruitfulness. If that last sentence or two doesn't mean anything to you, never mind. We, um, this too will pass. Um, <clears throat> but in particular, we can't say, ah, John's book is apocalyptic, therefore we know roughly the sort of thing he's going to be saying. Um, the tale is told of Karl Barth being asked by a lady whether the serpent in Genesis actually spoke. And he's supposed to have replied, Madam, it doesn't matter whether the serpent spoke. What matters is what the serpent said. And, <laughs> and in similar fashion, labeling something apocalyptic may not be of such huge significance as we've supposed. What matters is what the apocalypse says, what it's about. And from the start, as I've said, this apocalypse is of the prophetic type. Heaven and earth overlap, intersect, and on that hinges a great deal of theology and relevance. So, second section of this lecture, the hope and the vision. What is the Christian hope which John holds out? How does that hope sustain the calling and identity of the followers of Jesus in the present? The hope is expressed again and again in claims such as that of chapter 11, verse 15. The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. And it's important to note that this is stated at various points throughout the book, even in the midst of trouble and suffering. It's true already. That which is fully realized in chapters 21 and 22 is already anticipated in the sequence that runs from chapter 5, where all creation praises the Lamb who was slain because he has won the right to open the scroll of God's eternal purposes, through the various outbursts of praise to the final conclusion that when the new Jerusalem has come down from heaven to earth, the dwelling of God is with humans." In the present time, God has, interestingly, a temple in heaven, which is sometimes glimpsed by the seer. But when heaven and earth are joined, there will be no temple, because the whole city will be suffused with the presence of God. As Greg Beale has shown powerfully in his book on the temple and the church's mission, drawing out its larger significance within biblical theology, the city in Revelation will be an enormous cube, same length, breadth, and height, quite unrealistic as an earthly city, even supposing you allow it to be a gravity-free zone with gigantic skyscrapers, but utterly appropriate symbolically, both in terms of its ultimate perfection and more particularly of the fact that it is thereby a huge replica of the Holy of Holies in the temple. Heaven and earth are one at last. The dramatic tension which drives most of the book is the sharp and horrible realization that this state of affairs has not yet come to pass. But from the very beginning, we know that something has happened in and through which it has begun to be true. Jesus the Messiah, the Lion of Judah, has already conquered, is already enthroned. He is worthy to open the seals that would otherwise hold back 
the divine purpose for the world. Here, as in much of the New Testament, we have what you might call in the trade a Christologically-based inaugurated eschatology. And if you want to know what that means, please ask your neighbor afterwards. Um, basically, because of Jesus, the future has arrived in the present, but not yet fully, but it really has arrived in principle. It's because Jesus has been raised from the dead that his death is seen as salvific and redemptive and above all victorious. Here we discover too how mistaken is that reading of the New Testament, which has been very popular for the last century or so, which supposes that for the early Christians everything depended on something that hadn't quite yet happened, the parousia or the second coming or whatever. Clearly there was a strong and vital future hope, but something had already happened the death and resurrection of Jesus, as a result of which he'd already been installed as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the way the hope is articulated and the way it holds in place the vocation and character of the church in the present is through the tension between the opening vision of heavenly worship in chapters 4 and 5 and the closing vision of the New Jerusalem in 21 and 22. A word about each. Four and five, we should stress, are not a vision of the ultimate future, despite, for instance, I speak in a Methodist institution, Charles Wesley's magnificent hymn, Till We Cast Our Crowns Before Thee, as though the scene in Revelation 4 and 5 is the ultimate scene which we will eventually join. No, these are visions of the worship which all creation offers the Creator right now, but invisibly within the heavenly throne room. And this is important. They are the reality of which the throne rooms of this world with their sycophantic worship are the parody. That theme of reality and parody occupies John quite a lot. And the vision of the scroll indicates remarkably enough that the world's creator is true to his original plan in Genesis, which was to govern the world through obedient humans. All others then have failed, beginning of chapter 5, but the slaughtered lamb steps forward to do what in Scripture the Lion of Judah was to do, the messianic task, Israel's task, the human task. And the result is that through his redemptive death, humans from every nation have become a kingdom and priests who will reign on the earth, a significant framing theme of the book. And this vocation derives from the vocation of Israel in Exodus 19, looking back in turn to the vocation of the whole human race in Genesis 1 and 2. This is then, this idea of kings and priests is not then some rather odd, offbeat, specialized idea peculiar to John. It is the articulation of what it means to be genuinely human, standing between creator and creation, summing up creation's praises before God and bringing God's rule to bear upon creation. That is the hope which enables this people to praise God in the present despite their immediate circumstances and to learn that their witness, even unto death if that need be, is the means by which the world will be brought under the rule of the Lamb. This is the vision and the vocation which frames in particular the revelation of the mystery of evil at large in the world and the task of God's people to discern it and refuse its seductions. In other words, the vision of chapters 4 and 5 is designed to set the context within which the little communities to whom John writes will take heart and sharing in the worship already on earth will have courage to hold on to resist those who speak from other throne rooms and so to become victorious 
and to share at last in the new Jerusalem. So to the end of the book, the new Jerusalem, for its part, offers the ultimate hope, the city, the city, the place of human habitation, of mutual interchange and human flourishing, the city which is also a garden, indeed the garden. This is not about going back to Eden, as so many people imagine, but about going on and discovering that the final city is the goal towards which, had they but realized it, Eden's original inhabitants were called to work. In a fresh blending of Genesis 2 and Ezekiel, the river flows through the city and the tree of life grows on its banks. Think back to Genesis, though. Who was the first person to build the city? Well, Cain in Genesis 4. And from that first city on to Babel in Genesis 11, we see humans grasping uh, frantically but futilely at the ideal from which the primal sin had debarred them, constructing instead murderous and arrogant parodies of that goal. This lies at the heart of the great contrast at the end of Revelation between Babylon and Jerusalem. Babylon represents the ultimate in that Cain and Babel story. The New Jerusalem represents the ultimate in the story which interestingly begins with the nomad Abraham, but which is then anticipated in the city of David. The dualist reaction today of romanticism is to demonize the city and celebrate withdrawn rural life as the only alternative. Since I have just left a building in a town and gone to live in a small house right out in the country, I feel myself slightly guilty at this point, but that's just how life is. Compare, uh, you know, this romanticism and the rejection of the city. Stevie Smith's famous line, they went to build the New Jerusalem and ended up with New York. And that wasn't a compliment. Uh, that's not the biblical answer any more than Richard Newhouse's opposite position. I once heard him say, when we arrive in the New Jerusalem, we will see a sign saying, from the people who brought you New York. Um, no, neither of those works. Now that the Lion of Judah has conquered, and according to Psalm 2, will conquer all the kingdoms of the earth, the true city can at last appear. And within that city, the redeemed human beings, who appear to be a growing number, not a little withdrawn minority, will share in the rule of the Lamb. When we understand this relationship between the vision of heavenly worship in chapters 4 and 5 and the final scenes, the long and puzzling middle section falls into place. The seals are removed from the scroll, unleashing a sequence of divine judgments which appear necessary to overthrow and abolish the ingrained and powerful evil which, despite our liberal preference for thinking that the world is really quite a nice place, has in fact taken root in the world through human sin and its sinister empowerment. And then there are the complex and artistic patterns by which all of that gets put together, not least the echoes of the plagues in Egypt. But in each case, the sequence of events of all these terrible judgments gets interrupted with the vision of the redeemed celebrating in worship, joining in the heavenly liturgy, which we've already seen going on in chapters 4 and 5. The vision of hope is therefore the vision of a people, a community, a polis, a city, which will finally be revealed as the New Jerusalem itself. And the fundamental characteristic of this polis is worship of the true God for who he is and for what, through the Lamb and his death, he has now done. 
And since this worship already takes place in the present, the eschatology is inaugurated. The, the, the question presses, though, as to what this polis looks like in the present time. That's at the heart of the political question. But all this can only happen because a victory has been won, which opens up the way for other victories to be won. What is this victory? Over whom is it won? What are the consequences? Up until chapter 12, it might have looked as though all this was really rather confusing and miscellaneous and lots of judgments and here's a bit of the church worshipping and we're just hanging in there on this very bumpy ride. But from chapter 12 onwards, it becomes clear that all this stuff is neither random nor isolated. It's part of a concerted campaign by an ultimate enemy who is determined to thwart the purpose of the world's creator. And here, John's symbolism, culled as usual from many other sources, Jewish but also non-Jewish, is on full lurid display as he introduces us to the dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the land. So, third, the challenge of the beast. With chapters 12, 13, and 14, we are forced to recognize, if we had doubted it, that this book is written from and to a very precise context. Detailed studies have shown that the famous 666 in chapter 13 must mean basically Nero Caesar. That's not only because of the numerical value of the name. The number possesses all sorts of other properties which make it clear this is what the church is up against. Much has been written about this. This beast, supported by the dragon and operating then through the secondary beast, the beast from the land, is a parody of Jesus at several levels, not least the refrain that he was and is not and is to come, unlike Jesus who was and is and is to come. The reality is that the living God wills to rule his world through the Messiah and then through the Messiah's people. The parody is that the dragon rules the world through the beast and then through his henchmen, notably the second beast. But if Nero is identified, at least in a preliminary way, with the beast from the sea, where might we go from there? A question about the date, but second, does this mean that the book possessed great meaning for that generation, but none, except distant historical reminiscences, for any other generation, our own included? Major questions, they deserve some care. First about the date, I'm not going to say very much about this. A majority today agrees with Irenaeus in dating the book in the reign of Domitian towards the end of the first century. I'm not entirely convinced yet that we have to rule out a date in late 68 or early 69 or perhaps even early 70. I have long thought that if St. Paul had lived to see the year of the four emperors, 69, when Roman emperors came and went every couple of months, he might well have said, that's actually what I was talking about in 1 Thessalonians 5 when I said that when they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them and there'll be no escape. That's speculation. But uh, it, is, it is quite possible that something, to my mind, that something like that's going on. But I don't know. I'm not sure that affects it. More important, the second question. I believe this part of Revelation, though to be sure carrying a very specific historical reference, is written in such a way as to open up a window on a much larger issue even than Rome and Nero. The model for Revelation 13 is, of course, Daniel 7. Some of us are talking about this earlier today. 
But it's noticeable that whereas Daniel has four beasts emerging from the sea, Revelation has only one, but it represents three of those animals, a leopard, a bear, and a lion. Could it be that the writer is signaling that the real problem is not Nero himself, but that which Nero for the moment embodies and expresses, something which will emerge and has emerged and other times in other guises? This has, of course, been a popular route in exegesis, and today people will often say, well, yeah, the real enemy is empire or something like that. And this points towards a route as well through the fascinating but difficult chapter 17, where the great whore Babylon is clearly Rome itself, sustained by its sequence of emperors of whom the beast is one. But if we make that identification, we have three routes then open to us. We could say that the writer believed that the fall of Rome and the ushering in of the complete new age was imminent and that he was wrong. That's a route many have taken about the New Testament expectation in general. They expected this and that and the other to happen. They were wrong, so now let's get on and and read it differently. Or we could say with the dispensationalists that though Rome may have been John's model, he was in fact writing history a long way in advance, the history of our own day, with a big gap in between. The main argument against the dispensationalists is actually their failure to take seriously the nature of John's symbolism. It's symbol, not code. There are codes embedded, but the symbol is what gives it the shape and the structure. Or you could say... I said there were three routes. I seem to have at least four. Never mind, that's how lecture writing goes. Um, Or we could say that his prophecies are consistent with the fall of Rome, which happened 400 and more years later, in which case he was sort of right, but we would still be left with a large hermeneutical gap between John and when the fall of Rome actually happened, and then between that event and ourselves. Or we could say that though John certainly did envisage Rome's fall, he saw it as encapsulating and embodying the disastrous and self-destructive way of life of all human empires or all human empires of certain types. This is the power of using Babylon as symbol rather than merely code. The Cain and Babel narrative in which humans grasp at the eschatological city gift but inevitably corrupt it and use it as an instrument of their own self-aggrandizing power reaches various climactic moments of which Rome is the obvious foreground for John. That is the interpretative route towards which I find myself drawn. Now, this is not simply to make Rome a mere example of a broad, general, timeless truth. Just as Jesus and his death and resurrection are not mere examples of a larger general truth that God loves us or whatever, but they are actually the midpoint of history. They are the point at which the ancient door of God's purposes swings open at last to reveal the new world that lies ahead. So, Rome, the great power which at that unique moment summed up arrogant human rebellion, will fall. And that will be the sign that Jesus has won the decisive victory. However many new Babylons, new Romes appear between that specific decisive time and the eventual consummation. Two main features of the rule of the beast are of particular concern to John. The first is idolatrous worship. 
The second is aggressive economic exploitation. On the first, it is now well known that the imperial cult was the fastest growing religion in first century Asia Minor. The worship of Rome itself and of the emperor and his family increasingly dominated city life, not only in Ephesus but throughout the province. Actually, of course, religion and politics have hardly ever been separable throughout human history, as they still are not for most of the world, and that they were completely intermingled in the first century Roman world. Power was what counted. Power came from the gods. Worship that power. Some of it may rub off on you. The dragon who's been thrown down from heaven retains the power which is his as a former member of the heavenly court, The dragon who has fallen gives his power to a beast who later on supports the woman in whom Rome's seductive power is symbolized. Beast and dragon together appear to present an all-powerful combination. The second beast from the land, now regularly understood to be the local officials who eagerly promote the imperial cult, they act as dragons in lamb's clothing, 1311, insisting that the beast be worshipped. And this power is then worked out by the second beast particularly in economic exploitation. To buy or sell, you've got to have the mark of the beast. An iron control of economic life, justified by the apparently overwhelming evidence for the beast's supernatural power. You can't resist it. You've got to go with this thing. That's one of the signs of the dragon's power. And the kings of the earth have thus, quote, committed fornication, unquote, with Babylon. This metaphor develops powerfully through chapters 17 and 18, and it forms another parody, this time between Babylon the great whore and the church the bride of the lamb. And in chapter 18, we see the unholy combination of money, sex, and power used nakedly and for their own sake instead of for the good of humans and creation and to God's glory. The last generation of commentators has been quick to insist that fornication is here simply a metaphor for power and money, but the regular condemnation of idolatry and its coupling with fornication in chapter 2 and the final condemnation of it in 21 and 22 seem to me to indicate that illicit sexual practices were one of many signs of the same overall bestial and dragon-inspired way of life which John is naming and shaming. The downgrading of responsibility into power for its own sake, of resources into money for its own sake, of relationships into sex for its own sake, and the multiple combinations of all three seem to lie at the heart of the critique of Babylonian empire. At this point, the masters of suspicion, Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud, seem to me to be spot on. Here we must face the problem that the word empire, like the word apocalyptic, has had a checkered career over recent years. How fashions change. Twenty years ago, one heard almost nothing of empire in New Testament studies. Now it's all over the place. The reasons for this have to do particularly, I think, with the shift away from existentialist interpretations to political ones, which has itself to do, I think, with a shift away from um, divinity schools to departments of religion as the place where a lot of writing about the New Testament has taken place. I, I don't say that's a bad thing. I'm just observing trends. It also has to do with a rapidly rising awareness that today's world 
following the collapse of the earlier European and Russian empires, has entered a new mode characterized by dangerous and unstable post-imperial societies on the one hand, and the rise of a different sort of empire, largely controlled by American interests on the other. Since my assigned topic includes the political implications of revelation, one can hardly omit this consideration, difficult though it is for a British citizen to tell his American cousins how not to organize their tea party. Again, let the reader understand. <laughs> All this, as you know, came out sharply in the varied reactions after September the 11th, which, with some including many Americans placing part of the blame on American imperialism and others reacting with vitriolic anger to any such suggestion. Now, part of our problem, I suggest, is that our mental grid for understanding power and hence politics is very different from that of a first century Jew or Christian. And it's, of course, the latter grid that ought to control our reading of Revelation. Ever since the two great revolutions, French and American, of the late 18th century, European and American politics has increasingly seen itself simply on a left-right spectrum. That was itself a French revolutionary invention. With the central problem of organizing a society, namely how to avoid tyranny on the one hand and chaos on the other, sloping off to the left among those who regard tyranny as the greatest evil and sloping off to the right among those who fear chaos most. The tyrannies of the 20th century have pushed all our spectrums further to the left. Whatever else we want, we don't want that. With the exaltation of freedom over order and liberty over constraint, this works through contemporary Western society in many different ways with many paradoxical complexities and reactions. The script doesn't really work that well, which is why we're in significant trouble at the moment. But we have no other, unless you're just going to collapse everything into single-issue politics. But the result, especially among liberation theologians and those most aware of the post-colonial imperative, has been that we have perhaps smiled our approval a bit too easily at the unmasking of the demonic and bestial regimes of Revelation 13 and 17. Again and again in the literature, one meets the familiar and far too oversimple antithesis between Revelation 13 and Romans 13 with the assumption that Revelation 13 is basically supporting our kind of left-wing politics and that Romans 13 is in favor of our kind of right-wing politics. Quite apart from consideration of canonical readings, this simply fails as a first-century Jewish or Christian reading. They didn't see things like we do. Part of the problem, of course, is that various recent regimes and programs have indeed appealed to passages like this. I think of the apartheid regime in South Africa, which routinely quoted Romans 13, the powers that be are ordained by God, we are the powers that be, therefore we can do, you must do what we say, etc. But another part of the problem is that exegetes have simply not been trained in the political thinking of the ancient world. And we face a problem very much like we face in Pauline studies, where for generations exegetes have read 16th and 17th century theological questions back into the first century and insisted that Paul should answer those questions in their own terms in the same way we come with our political ways of looking at things and imagine that when they're talking about politics they're addressing the things the way we do so and it's just that's just wrong it seems to me and the full antidote would be a proper detailed analysis of the larger world of ancient political thought and philosophy no time or in my case expertise for such a thing here but I just want to note the assumption which goes on right through Israel's scriptures on into the New Testament and early Christianity. 
that a proper, wise human ordering of society is one aspect of creational monotheism itself. In other words, the creator God wants humans to run his world, to make the wilderness flourish, to build wise and healthy cities, and to run them humanely. But from the Cain and Babel story onwards, it was recognized that the humans upon whom this responsibility falls will abuse it for their own ends. Again, power and money and sex. The people of God from Abraham onwards are therefore constantly called to articulate and embody the God-given critique of this abuse of human responsibility and where such abuse occurs within God's people themselves to address it prophetically by critique from within. And even that critique needs a critique and so on and so on. False prophecy and true prophecy. But all this critique happens, please get hold of this, not because power is bad, but because it is abused. As with gardens and cities, so with power. The nostalgic or romantic longing for a world without power is a desire to return to the nursery. Joseph, the archetypical wise ancient Israelite, becomes second in command to Pharaoh, kind of long-range paradoxical fulfillment Um, at the end of Genesis, of the place of humans at the beginning of it. Daniel and his friends, having launched their highly daring critique of Babylonian power and having come out smiling, resume their top jobs in the civil service. Today's revolutionary readers are horrified at that. We like Daniel when he's being a a daring revolutionary, but when he then goes back to be second in command of the empire, we, we think he's somehow ratted out. But no, that's how they saw it because the world needs bringing into order by wise human beings. Say the same about Paul, you say the same about Polycarp, and Jesus himself, I have a wonderful misprint here, but one's fingers do funny things. Having been writing about Joseph and Pharaoh, what I see on my sheet here is Jesus himself declares to Pharaoh that he could have no power over him. What I meant, of course, Jesus declares to Pontius Pilate that he could have no power. I mean, that is intertextuality and run, run riot, it really is. Um, <laughs> Jesus declares to Pilate, and John 18 and 19, for me, is the center of biblical political theology. Jesus declares to Pilate that he could have no power over him were it not given him from above. The Johannine theme is one of the sharpest and starkest. The ruler of this world is cast out, overthrown, defeated. Says so again and again, but he still rules by and only by God's appointment part of the mystery of the cross itself in John lies right there. Tyranny is horrible. It's defeated by the cross, but the beasts that tyrannize the world in Daniel and the great beast of Revelation 13 emerge from the sea. They are actually the chaos bringers. Their enforced and dehumanizing order will result in destruction, devastation, and chaos come again. So it won't do to read Revelation with the kind of satisfied glow that comes from having all our nice liberal prejudices easily confirmed. That, of course, doesn't imply either that our nice conservative prejudices are easily confirmed. To imagine that we're on that spectrum is the mistake. Rather, we are called to recognize the way in which bestial regimes rise, gain power, deceive many with their apparent success, attain economic supremacy, and then traffic so readily in all kinds of commodities, including, as in 1813, human beings. 
We are called to recognize that this happens and will happen, not because we should be aiming at a world without structures of power, but because power corrupts and the church must bear witness to that corruption by critique, by non-collaboration, by witness, and if need be, by martyrdom. If the world were to listen to the church, and twice in my lifetime it's done so, in South Africa and in Eastern Europe, the result should not be, though sadly it has sometimes been, a post-tyrannical chaos, but a fresh order, this time humanizing, this time striving afresh towards the garden city. As we all now know and should have known seven years ago, it will not do to assume that to overthrow a tyranny will result in the spontaneous growth of a healthy liberal democracy. One could also say more. My, my watch is going too fast at the moment. Let me try and summarize this next bit. Um, it won't do to assume that what we think of as healthy modern Western democracies are the ultimate and eternal answer to the problems of Revelation 12 to 18. That's part of the 18th century lie. In fact, the very separation of religion and politics, which is so vital a part of that essentially deistic settlement, in my country actually, despite popular opinion as well as yours, has resulted in regimes which, claiming that their elected power gave them the right, acted in ways far more like the beasts than like the church, pushing God out of the equation politically in the vox populi vox dei theory, scientifically with the neo-epicureanism that created the context for the appropriation and exploitation of Darwin, please note what I say carefully there, economically with the invisible hand of the market, ethically with the post-Freudian assumption that sex will do whatever it will do, all of that has the mark of the beast about it. These questions need to be worked out in many contexts, but it would be unwise to leave the central chapters of Revelation with the impression that the bestial regimes are only and always non-democratic tyrannies. Perhaps this is why the Western Church, so comfortable now, is not persecuted. I just note in particular one thing, in addition to the paper here, having said I was going to abbreviate, I'm going to add. Um, <laughs> for the early Jews and the early Christians... The key issue was not how the people in power got to be in power. They weren't going around saying we, we must have one, one person, one vote or anything. Uh, no, people get into power by all sorts of means. The key issue was what are you going to do now that you are in power? And the task of the Jews, as they saw it again and again, the task of the early church, to hold up the mirror to power and say you should be doing this, you are in fact doing that. And then for the church to model what it might look like to be a genuine human society. The vision of hope then confronts the regimes of the dragon and the beasts, and the church, caught up within and bearing witness to that hope, must constantly be refreshed in worship of the true God, the real Trinity, so to learn to avoid collusion with the beast in a way which would be much more demanding than any easygoing, one-size-fits-all solution would allow. The church is to live as the alternative polis, not by separating itself into sectarian isolation, but by bearing witness like Daniel and his friends before kings and rulers. The aim is not to damn but to redeem. The leaves on the tree are for the healing of the nations and the gates stand open for the kings of the earth to bring in their treasures. Only if we keep that goal before us will we avoid the isolation which is the mirror image of collusion. Final remarks on canon and tradition. Bear with me. 
Again and again, Revelation draws on great themes and insights from the Old Testament prophets, not because the Old Testament is a kind of bran tub out of which you can scoop enough to make another meal for today or tomorrow. It's because Revelation, like the whole New Testament, sees the Old, te- like the whole New Testament, sees the Old Testament as a great, complex, multifaceted narrative which came to its climax in Jesus and has now generated a new narrative which is gener- was demonstrably the fulfillment of that ancient story, but also in a significant new mode. Revelation is, in Richard Borkham's phrase, the climax of prophecy. It seems that the writer is aware of this. In particular, the, 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 the book of Revelation tells the same story that the Gospels tell, which, though we may not normally read the Gospels like this, goes like this, that... It is the story of how Jesus of Nazareth, Israel's Messiah, conquered the power of evil through his death and became the Lord of the world. The New Testament is not about how Jesus, on the one hand, revealed he was divine and then died so that we could go to heaven. That's halfway to Gnosticism, if you're not careful. They are about how Jesus acted as the embodiment of Israel's God to overthrow the usurping forces of evil and to establish through his death, resurrection, and ascension God's kingdom on earth as in heaven. See it in Mark, see it in John, see it all over the place. And the same is true even in Paul. Romans 8, pretty much the heart of Paul. In the coda at the end of that, verses 31 to 39, um, God justifies so no one can condemn. Jesus died so all will be well. Suffering of whatever sort will not separate us from his love. And in these things we are more than conquerors. It's a pretty darn good summary of the book of Revelation. Philippians 2, you could say the same. The tradition of the church, sadly, has sometimes got it right, sometimes got it wrong. In particular, speaking as one who has lived and worked in an established church, I believe that ever since the 4th century, but particularly in the medieval West, the great church has become increasingly alienated from the vision of God and God's kingdom, which we find in the New Testament, and by way of displacement, has highlighted themes which, though themselves important, are not the urgent and driving heart of the canon itself. The radical misunderstandings of the dispensationalists are simply one recent outgrowth of this phenomenon. It won't do to mount a great program to show how wrong and stupid the dispensationalists are. Not that they're going to listen anyway, frankly, um, not to us anyway. Um, Far more dangerous, I think, are the deep-rooted misunderstandings which have construed the King Christian hope as simply going to heaven forever and which have invoked the divinity of Jesus and his saving death in service of that vision rather than in the service of the overthrow of the powers and the establishment of God's kingdom, and which have then apparently abandoned politics as a dirty bestial game, and then have ended up colluding as a result with the deeper structures of abuse. Revelation then shows us, in and through all its puzzling arcane imagery, a vision of the creator God reclaiming sovereignty over the whole world through the slaughtering of the Lamb, and entrusting to the present worshipping church the responsibility to bear witness to Jesus as the world's true Lord and to his way of victory as the power which is greater than the power of Babylon. That is the ground of Christian hope. That is the foundation of a Christian vision of the polis in the present as much as in the ultimate future. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Tom, for that engaging and challenging lecture. We now have uh, Dr. C. Cavan Rowe to give a response. Cavan? Uh, as I think you'll all agree, Professor Wright has given us a rich and stimulating and wide-ranging reflection. In such a short response as I was asked to make, it won't be possible to focus on all the questions that he raises for us, nor would it really make sense in this setting to spend much time on the finer points of exegetical detail or on the proper construal of Fourth Ezra, Second Baruch, and so on. So what I'm going to do instead is to ask three questions about the larger picture he presents. I suspect that Professor Wright and I would have large amounts of agreement about these three matters, but it is nevertheless useful to ask the questions because they get us thinking not only about the proper interpretation of this complex biblical book, but also about the crucially important interconnection, you might even say inseparability, between theology and politics. So the first question has to do with the relation of symbolic language about Rome to Jesus' resurrection and the course of subsequent history from that day until now. Professor Wright says that we should read Revelation's language about Babylon and so forth, not simply as code for Rome, but also as symbol. Remember he said it's not code, it's symbol. For the self-destructive or abusive way of life of all human empires or the bestial or bestial kinds. This does not, he goes on to say, make Rome into a mere example of a larger general truth, just as Jesus and his death and resurrection are not mere examples of the larger truth of God's love, but are actually the midpoint of history. The real Rome will fall. And this, says Wright, will be the sign that Jesus has won the decisive victory, however many new Babylons, new Romes, appear between that time and the eventual consummation. The question is something like this. If Rome is to be taken symbolically for other empires, and if new Romes have appeared between the first century and now, then how exactly is it? that Jesus' victory is not itself merely a symbol for the triumph of good over evil as this dialectic plays out through the various historical manifestations of the rise and fall of empires. Would not the repeated rise and fall of symbolic Rome through time require us to think in terms of the repeated death and resurrection of Jesus as that which stands against the Romes of the world. If not, and of course Tom says explicitly not, then what exactly is the once for all real victory over Rome such that it keeps coming back? How would Revelation teach us to think, to use a different kind of grammar about the actual ontic content of Christ's victory in the face of the repeated rise of Rome's. And how might this in turn teach us to think about the practical or lived shape of Christ's victory in the face of all the different versions of Babylon or Rome? This leads then to the second question. 
So secondly, I would like to ask Professor Wright for some clarification and specificity on the question of Revelation's vision of Christian community and how that vision relates to larger human society. Professor Wright says clearly, at least in the version that I read, John is no sectarian. I think you could get that from his remarks as well. And that his vision of hope is a vision of a people, a community, a polis, which will finally be revealed as the new Jerusalem itself. Much later in his talk, Professor Wright also said something much more sweeping about the Christian vision of human society, namely that, quote, a proper, wise, and effective ordering of society is one aspect of creational monotheism itself, which, he argues, is an assumption that runs through all of Scripture and early Christianity. The creator God, says Wright, wants humans to run his world, to make the wilderness flourish, and to build wise and healthy cities and run them humanely. My question is, in general terms, what exactly is the vision of revelation for Christian community and society? And how exactly does that relate to normative Christian reflection on politics today? It seems to me that Professor Wright is certainly correct in his critique of those who fantasize about doing away with the need for the right use of power. This is, I think, correct. It's a wish for the return to the nursery. Still, does he think that the logic of revelation could be extended theologically to a kind of Christendom, uh, O'Donovan style, or some other kind, Or might this vision for a larger Christianized society require a discarding of Revelation's implicit distinction between church and world that it presupposes in its refusal to reach for imperial power? That is, even in its claim that Jesus is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, Revelation does not, of course, envision Jesus as the new Caesar, That sort of politics is rejected, most poignantly in the image of the slain lamb. In short, I wonder if there is not a rather large difference between an ecclesiology that organizes its life primarily in terms of an alternative polis and one that seeks to establish rule, benevolently of course, over a larger society in which not all people will embrace the Christian faith. How does Wright's reading of Revelation take account of the complex intersection between alternative polis and larger human society? The third question, on going to heaven or getting up to heaven and politics. All the way through the paper, and especially at the end, Professor Wright is concerned to avoid what he has long seen as the problematic way in which Christian talk about heaven is habitually referred entirely to the future postmodern life or collapses the distinction between what happens to us after we die and the final eschatological consummation of all creation, the end of the world. We seriously go astray, says Wright, when we forget that the New Testament language about heaven has more to do with the entrance into our world of God's salvific and redemptive power in Jesus' resurrection. 
As he puts it in the language of the book of Revelation, we are not taken up to the new Jerusalem. This is the end of the world. It comes down to us. Of course, Professor Wright obviously affirms that Christian hope entails the final consummation of the redemption wrought in Jesus Christ. He says that multiple times. And in that sense, Revelation does look forward to a day that has not yet come. But the accent in his interpretation is clearly on the transformative power of God in the present. This is, I think, a powerful and necessary corrective to the vast amounts of useless speculation on Revelation's connection to a particular calendrical date on which the world will end. Still, the New Jerusalem is not here. And there is, therefore, not only an indelible sense in which hope tilts toward the future, but also a theologically serious sense in which Revelation's own forward gaze needs to be ours, and robustly so. Transformative politics can be, on the one hand, wonderfully effective, and on the other, dangerously overconfident vis-a-vis the recalcitrance of the human being, I'm a Calvinist after all, and the world's intractably deformed and violent patterns that continue to shape our relation to one another right across the globe. To lose a robust forward gaze is to cut the ground from underneath the active shape hope takes in the present. The early Christian martyrs, for example, quintessential politicians, you might say, in the deepest sense of the word politics, were not, it seems to me, from the surviving accounts of their deaths, terribly confident about their ability to transform the empire that executed them. They were, however, remarkably secure in the hope of the life to come. And this hope was not so much about the end of the world, as it were, but was, in their practical reasoning at least, anchored more deeply in Christ's victory over their own particular death. The hope that they would live again was, to put it simply, fundamentally constitutive of their political witness and willingness to suffer unto death. For the martyrs to die was to gain, and they wanted, as is said explicitly, for example, in the account of Justin's beheading, to go up to heaven to be with Christ. This is a refrain that occurs in many of the surviving accounts of the martyrs' execution. In short, in the case of the early martyrs, the hope of going to heaven immediately upon death had profound political purchase in their ability to resist torture and die proclaiming their faith. This looking forward to life on the other side of death does not, as a matter of necessity, therefore, entail speculation on the precise date of the end of the world or remove the animating convictions about Christ's victory that fund political action in the present. Those were Tom's two political implications of emphasizing going to heaven, I think. Indeed, it may well provide a rich context in which to nurture a future-oriented hope as a way to reckon with the pain inflicted by ineradicable evil 
and tragic death on this side of the second death and the new Jerusalem. To be sure, the language of going to heaven may at times, as Tom has pointed out, be seriously problematic, but it may also ground a political action of the most serious kind. Canonically speaking, the book of Genesis is Alpha and the book of Revelation, Omega. It is the book that claims within the canonical spectrum of beginning to end to tell us about the end. That crazy things have been made of its rather startling imagery is hardly surprising anymore, though such things remain psychologically no less than theologically pernicious. But we should not let strange interpretive distortions or their odd embodiments distract us from what is surely a major point of Revelation's canonical placement today. To see the end, we need to read this book. It does, without question, train us to see the active presence of God in an alternative polis here and now, the inauguration of the kingdom of the king of kings, but it also points us beyond ourselves to God's good future in which there really will be no more tears. If at bottom, this yearning for no more tears is something like what the average Christians in the pew hope will be the case for them personally, what they long for most deeply as the victory over their own sufferings and death when they speak of going up to heaven or getting to heaven, then I'm all for it. And I think the book of Revelation probably is too. Thank you, Tom, for yet another wonderful contribution to our common hope to read scripture well and to live by it for the glory of God and for the sake of the world which he loves. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Kevin, for that response. We're going to give uh, Professor Wright a moment to respond briefly to each of those points. I have a feeling that many of us probably wish that uh, this discussion could go on for a much longer time than we have budgeted for it here this afternoon. I can't resist in passing before I call Tom back up here uh, making a remark that I was pleased to see in his lecture uh, that he was quoting Karl Barth with approval. And not only that, but quoting Bart to the effect that the content of the narrative was more important than its historical referentiality. <laughs> Tom, to you. It kind of happens if you leave the black ball over the pocket, somebody smart is going to put it in. Yeah. Um, um, <clears throat> Kevin, thank you very much. That is a lovely response, and, and I wish we could just you know, go and have an hour or two talking about it very, very quickly because others will want to come in. Um, I, I, as a newcomer to Revelation, I, I find myself instinctively responding to your first two questions, um, really as a pastor. Um, the question of, okay, Rome is to fall, the great beast is to be defeated, and so now we go on, and then another one comes, and then another one, and another one. I, I know that pattern. When I prepare somebody for baptism or confirmation, and then when I walk with them through the early stages or even the later stages of their Christian life, and when I look in the mirror myself, I say, 
We are baptized in Christ. We are dead to sin. We are alive to... Paul says that. I believe it. So how come there's another great whack of this temptation and this particular sin which come back again and again? Am I to be deceived into thinking that actually nothing much has changed and I'm just grunging along and it's just more of the same? Or do I have in faith to say again and again with Martin Luther? Another surprise I should be quoting Luther in, in Bonham Parton. Baptizatusum. Baptizatusum. I've been baptized. This is where I stand. Seems to be faith says that, but it, it is faith that says it, not immediate visible experience and I actually want to tr then to transpose that onto the political thing and say you know the beast has been destroyed now however much these regimes whatever they look like may threaten themselves threaten to, to look like just another great Rome we have to say as a matter of faith um, actually that, that we are in that same position uh, on the other side of death and resurrection that's tough in, in Christian pastoral experience personal experience is tough in political experience that's where I think we have to be on the second one the church and human society all sorts of stuff we could say about what Christendom might actually mean I had the privilege of spending Holy Week in a church right in the middle of one of our inner cities in the northeast of England and I was there more or less the whole week and took part in everything that was going on and I kept night after night as I was going to bed I was thinking I've actually seen the church this is what the church looks like um, most of the people in that congregation were very poor um, they were an astonishingly uh, lively worshipping church they were active in things like the street pastors movement I don't know if you know about that where, where you wear big fluorescent yellow jackets you go out on the street on the Friday night and around all where are the pubs and the clubs and so on so that all the kids who are getting drunk and stoned out of their mind will have somebody friendly who can help find them a taxi to get them back home or uh, phone their friend or whatever in other words not I tell you I look quite a sight because I had my purple cassock on and I put this yellow thing on top that was just um, that was wonderful um, and, and, this, and this is the point uh, the police took notice, the city council took notice, the people who ran the, the local market took notice of the fact that this church was kind of doing stuff and it was making sense and it was helping people and it was humanizing and the vicar of the church gets invited to sit down and talk with the civic, local civic leaders about what, what could we be doing? Um, is there something in our education we could be doing differently? How should we be running this? And so on. Um, and the church was not grabbing at power and wouldn't have it if it was offered it, but it was doing things which just said very powerfully on the street in all sorts of ways, there is a different way of being human. And it's about celebrating the life of Jesus and, and all sorts of stuff. And um, I then transpose that up to things like debates in the House of Lords where you speak, um, I've spoken, Rowan Williams has spoken against those who want to go the route of euthanasia or assisted suicide or whatever, and some people scream blue murder and say you're trying to push your Christian agenda down our throats, and actually what we are trying to do there is to say there is a better way to be human, a way which should commend itself across the board. Um, tough though it is, and I know it's, I know it's tough. So again, I go to kind of pastoral situations. Um, I don't have a grand unifying theory about what to do either after Christendom or instead of it or whatever. It's tough. We are feeling our way forward. But I've seen local models, and I think there is real hope there. Thirdly, yes, of course, um, I think the real problem, I've come to think this after a very odd paper a few months ago by Marcus Bockmuehl saying that Tom Wright doesn't seem to believe in going to heaven or whatever. Um, no, um, uh, 
I actually think that when Justin and people are talking about heaven and that that gives them this ability to make a political comment and stance, I suspect that what we mean by heaven in the post-Enlightenment Western world is really very different. I think they have a much more robust Jewish view of even the intermediate state. Um, and I suspect that our vision of heaven is far too platonized and far too full of fluffy clouds and harps and so on, um, and, and that we've just forgotten what a robust thing heaven I mean, heaven is God's place. What a great place to be. And, but heaven is designed to be joined with earth. Interesting, I didn't mention it, of course, in, in, in Revelation. There is an intermediate state. The souls under the altar are saying, how long, how long? Um, you know, that's seems to me fair enough. It's a two-stage post-mortem reality, as long as one is happy with that. And for goodness sake, Justin, as you know, and Arrhenius and people like that were very robust about, yeah, we are going to be with Christ now, which is far better, a la Paul in Philippians 1, but there is going to be a whole new day. I think it's that total vision which gives them their political clout. Do you want me to stay here and take questions um, uh, in, in such time as is left? Thank you very much for your patience with no, that's, that's very helpful to have those responses. I want to take just a moment's privilege to introduce to you the participants who are here for this conference on the book of Revelation, uh, sponsored with the aid of the McDonald Agape Foundation. The, in addition to the two of us, there are seven uh, scholars visiting here who are presenting papers, and I'd like to introduce each of them and have them stand. Uh, first, Professor Stefan Alkir from the Goethe-Universität in Frankfurt, Germany, who is uh, co-chairing the seminars with me. Uh, uh, Professor Michael Gorman from the Ecumenical Institute of Theology at St. Mary's Seminary and University in Baltimore. Uh, Professor Thomas Hieke from the University of Mainz, Germany. Uh, Professor jo Joseph Mangina from uh, Wycliffe College in Toronto. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, Professor uh, Steve Moyes from the University of Chichester in England. Professor Tobias Niklas from the Universität Regensburg in Germany. And uh, Professor Marianne Mai Thompson from Fuller Theological Seminary. So that's our group of visiting scholars participating in this conference. And I want to begin by giving that group the first opportunity to pose questions or responses. I should also say, by the way, that in addition to the papers presented by this group, different members of the Duke Divinity School faculty have also been participating uh, by giving responses to all of the papers that have been offered. And I won't take time to introduce to you people you already know from your regular classes, but it's been a, a rich experience. So first, any members of the, any participants? Stefan, you first. The historical question is, um, I, I, I think that uh, the, uh, um, it's very misdone uh, to always to say the Roman, the Roman Imperium was a bad thing. Um, uh, when you read Michael Mann's uh, theory of power, the thing for the Romans really uh, were much better in the first uh, um, century, uh, uh, um, uh, and, and that uh, they, they did it, the uh, Caesars did not 
still still do this bad job. And um, often I think when uh, the New Testament scholars of Germany uh, talk about um, uh, Rome, they have the Nazis uh, uh, in mind. And when Americans uh, talk about Romans, they have uh, uh, American imperialism in mind. And that it's not a good thing in terms of um, uh, history uh, uh, investigation. Uh, but more important for me is the question of um, um, uh, the, the uh, theological power. And that is the question I want to pose to you. Um, uh, it's, uh, I think it's absolutely necessary that we have a theological theory of power of God and uh, that is non-fundamentalistic. And um, I think one important point is always when we talk about the power of God and you, real, uh, and you uh, said um, w when we s uh, uh, look at the uh, um, uh, revelation then um, even uh, the power is given by God. The kings have the power uh, um, by God, but that pose the question of, the, uh, of uh, God's justice. Yeah? When God uh, gives the power, then he is responsible uh, for all the things that happen. And how uh, do you um, uh, answer this question of God's justice in terms of the theory of God's almighty power? Yeah. Wonderful, thank you. Uh, two questions. We missed out the structural bit in the middle, but it's probably just as well. Um, the, the, the historical thing, yes, had you been in many parts of what became the Roman Empire, ruled over by your local folk or by whatever other people had scrunched you to bits, then you might actually find that Roman justice, Roman rules, Roman laws, etc., Roman roads, were actually a, an improvement. Um, and, and so that the Roman rhetoric of, um, you know, look what we've done for you, was not entirely vacuous. Um, at the same time, so much of it, think of Augustus's claim to have brought peace to the world. What he'd actually done was to win a long and bloody civil war, and the reason there was peace was that everyone was so exhausted that there was no one left to fight. Ah, oh, we brought peace, you know. And so often the Roman claims, even though, yes, there was peace, but actually when you examine it, it's, it's got a, a dark and dirty side to it as well. Um, um, so, so, yes, I, I'm perfectly happy to give a much more nuanced reading of Roman power, but I think that then gives it a context within which the bestial side, as it were, can gain more credence in the first century. I could give one or two recent British examples of the same phenomenon, but perhaps I won't. Um, but the, the, the theological thing, Stephen Sykes, Professor Stephen Sykes, sometime of Cambridge, um, then Bishop of Ely, wrote a book recently on a Christian theology of power, which I think helps to answer exactly what you were talking about. I would also want, were there world enough and time, to introduce two Corinthians, which I think is, is the classic New Testament statement about God's power being made known in weakness and the huge paradox of that which then for me is symbolized as I said before in Jesus standing before Pilate where the whole New Testament then tells us that in fact it was Pilate and the Roman Empire who were on trial um, even though in fact it looked as if it was Jesus on trial and I go back from that to, Ro to John 16 verses uh, 5, 6, 7, 8-ish when the spirit comes he will convince the world or convict the world of sin, righteousness and judgment um, that is what the Spirit does to the world, and the Spirit does that to the world, I take it, through the church, bearing witness the way that Jesus bears witness before Pilate. That's where I would start for a Christian reworking of a theology of, of power. And of course, with regard to the book of Revelation, the image of the slaughtered lamb corresponds very closely to the power and weakness in Second Corinthians. Uh, Professor Joel Marcus, I see. Yes, uh, well, 
thank you for this delightfully perverse lecture. Um, I mean, a, a few years you were giving us, you know, a Paul who was sort of a revolutionary, and now you have a John who is more of an establishment figure than I had <laughs> been thinking of him. But that's not what I wanted to ask you about. Um, I wanted to ask you about, like, Revelation 1.1, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which shows the things that must soon come to pass. Uh, and that note is repeated at the end, you know, I'm coming quickly, and in the middle, you know, like where the martyrs say, uh, how long is it going to be? And they're told they're going to rest, you know, just for a little while. So uh, it does seem to me that the uh, element of imminence is there. Uh, but unless I'm hearing you wrong, wrongly, you're denying that it's there. And for me, uh, Chris Becker's approach, whom you mentioned uh, quickly, is I liked his approach. He said that apocalyptic language was about three things. It was about imminence, it was about the assurance of God's victory, and it was about the vindication of God's people. And he said that uh, we can hold on to those latter two things, but the first one has to go. Um, and I just wonder if that isn't what those exegetical observations about I'm coming quickly have to point us towards, that the seer was wrong about the imminence of the end, but we can still believe that there is some consummation to God's purpose coming and that it's going to mean vindication for God's people. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not unhappy with those last two points, obviously. I think the imminence question, which has rumbled on through New Testament studies for the last 150 years or so, um, one of the odd things is it doesn't seem to have bothered the early theologians at the late first century through second century, you've got that one little flicker in two Peter, you know, what's this about? And you get the answer, um, day of the Lord is, uh, um, uh, one day with the Lord is like a thousand years and vice versa. But um, through the second century, even those who hold on very uh, excitedly to uh, uh, an apocalyptic, uh, a vision of what God is going to do, they're not actually saying this is all a bit embarrassing because it should have happened 50 years ago or 60 years ago or whatever. That really doesn't seem to bother them. And uh, I suspect that there is something there in their um, easy translation which we should learn from rather than putting too much emphasis there. Th that is, though I confess your question or the, the, the facts which lie behind your question, the soon stuff, is one of the reasons why I don't want to foreclose on the possibility that Revelation was actually written in 68-69-ish and that the great convulsive events of 69 and 70, which were convulsive for Rome, I mean massively so, um, uh, we, we, because we know that Vespasian and Domitian and, and, and uh, Vespasian, Titus and Domitian came along and established a new sort of Caesar dynasty, we kind of smooth over that. But actually, if you'd lived through, um, you know, 40 BC through to 69 AD, if somebody had lived that long, then 69 would have felt absolutely like the end of the world. And as I say, maybe Paul would have seen it like that. So th those are just opening opening musings um, we, we, and perhaps corresponding to the delightful caricature which you gave at the beginning of your question. Yeah. <laughs> Other questions from our conference participants? Maybe from Mike Gorman. Tom, thank you very much.
very much for your paper, as always, uh, animated and, and fun and, and rich. How would you respond? I guess one question I have for you, though, is how would, would you respond to what seems to be an, a quasi-post-millennialism in your underlying sort of theological perspective on this, that if the church bears sufficient weak, uh, uh, witness as, as the weak, continuation of the witness of the lamb, that there will be this transformation that we can, it's almost guaranteed in a sense, it seems to be you're suggesting. And in light of that, uh, how would you re respond to what seems to be the more likely phenomenon that the more people get power, whatever kind it is, especially political power, it, it corrupts them, they become corrupt and we get Babylon number three, four, five, 75. Would it not, how would you answer those who would say, wouldn't it not be more um, faithful to Revelation to simply bear witness, not expecting success, which I, I, mm -hmm, I hear that mm -hmm, as your mm -hmm, subtext, mm -hmm, that success mm -hmm. is probably going to happen. Yeah, uh, uh, this is difficult and it would require a whole other paper just to tease out and explore the different ramifications of that. But um, I, mean, I think, for instance, of the Christian's for whom Desmond Tutu was a great leader in South Africa. Um, they went on with a cheerful witness even when it seemed as though the apartheid regime was absolutely set in stone forever. They just went on praying, they went on going and knocking on doors of people in power saying, can we read the Bible with you? And uh, you know, risking being thrown out or worse, um, sometimes they were. And uh, astonish, I mean, uh, some of you are too young to remember, but in the 70s, it was just said as a matter of fact that fairly soon there was going to be a huge bloodbath in southern Africa, and there were going to be millions of people killed, and it was just going to be terrible and explosive, etc. Um, and we look back now on, on the fact that that didn't happen, and one of the primary reasons it didn't happen was that people in a position of utter weakness and vulnerability, and Desmond Tutu is a good example, um, just had the courage to go on praying and witnessing and, and saying, you know, we're not going away. We're going to tell you about Jesus Christ and, and his vision of justice, etc. And resulting in that Commission for Truth and Reconciliation, which, you know, if somebody had said in 1960, there will come a time within 50 years when there'll be a Commission of Truth and Reconciliation with black thugs and white thugs both confessing their sins and asking forgiveness, you'd have said, dream on, that stuff doesn't happen. But it did and it has. And, you know, that's not to say that present South Africa is utopia. It certainly isn't. There's all sorts of post-apartheid problems that they haven't dealt with and new corruptions and new difficulties and so on. But that was a real, I don't like the word success because it's too sort of cheap and shallow and triumphalistic, but it really was an amazing victory. People tell similar stories about, say, the Polish revolution which precipitated um, the end of, of Eastern Europe as we knew it. Um, that started partly with the election of a Polish pope, which gave the Solidarity Movement courage to do what it did in 1981 and so on. Um, these are the ramblings of an old man, forgive me. Some of you just, you know, this is ancient, ancient history for some of you. Um, but uh, I think part of the difficulty for us is that the Enlightenment taught us to think that Christianity is bad for your health, it's out of date, it's been disproved, and as soon as anyone says, you know, what's the church done, all we get told about is the Crusades and the Inquisition. Nobody tells you about hospitals, about education, about all kinds of stuff, which the church right at the beginning did very, very amazingly and showed the world that there was a different way of being human so that even though the Romans were trying to persecute the Christians to the nth degree under Diocletian, more and more people went on 
saying, actually, we'd rather be this sort of a human than that sort of a human. And that and it seems to me we shouldn't foreclose on the possibility that God will really do different things. My problem is more immediate. In 2003, your country and mine, um, with the two leaders out of the G8 who were the most overtly Christian, we did some really crazy, reprehensible, I think wicked things. How are we going to be, in any sense, nations under God, places where um, that whole modus operandi can be subverted because we've been doing it pretty badly recently. We are hearing the five o'clock chimes of Duke Chapel. Um, and I, we haven't yet had an opportunity for any questions from the audience. And uh, there, I'm sure far more than we could possibly begin to take. But I wonder, with your indulgence, if I could say let's take five more minutes for, say, two quick questions and answers to allow a couple of members of the audience to pose something. So can we, do we have questions anyone would like to ask? Here's one back here. I appreciate your talk very much, and I think um, one of the most striking unitive elements of it was um, the fact that there is, um, I guess for lack of a better term, a, an overarching story of redemptive history which informs your reading of scripture. And I wonder um, how uh, your presentation today and your reading of Revelation informs um, the church's way forward uh, in the in our relationship with um, what you might call the other world religions um, and both the way that we think about that encounter and then how we might productively um, love and serve the world as uh, the humble mm. reflection of Jesus Christ. Yeah, th thanks. I mean, th this is a huge question with comparatively little to do with the book of Revelation, though you might um, manage to squeeze it in, I suppose. But um, it, it is a whole other topic. My sense of the way forward with adherence of the other great world faiths, I've only had experience of Christian Jewish and Christian Muslim dialogue, I've never engaged with, with Hindus and Buddhists, um, is that th things like, you may know the Scriptural Reasoning Project, which is where Christians, Jews, and, and Muslims sit down with their own scriptures in front of them and they engage in discussion, not pretending that these are all going to say the same thing, but simply hearing what each other say, inquiring, sharing where they are. That is an amazingly fruitful way forward and one which proceeds or should proceed out of deep respect for the other person, the other position, but without, as I say, pretending that there is some great truth somewhere in the sky to which these three are um, roads up a misty mountain. Um, but uh, part of our difficulty is separating that, at the moment, is separating that out from um, political, sociological, sociocultural questions. And um, we have at the moment little windows of opportunity to do that in this culture and so on, which many parts of the world don't have. We should be using those opportunities for all they're worth. Um, 
the vision of God which you get in Revelation and in Paul, etc., um, and in the Gospels, is a very, very specific vision of God which was controversial in the ancient world. What you mean, a God whose son would be crucified? You know, what sort of a God is that? And remains controversial in today's world. We shouldn't try to dress that up, but precisely because, as a Christian, I believe in the God who reveals himself like that, he is the one who comes, as Schweitzer said, as one unknown. He can do that in many ways and in many cultures. And the weakness of simply humble serving, of Christians doing things in the world which speak of a God who loves the poor, who is there with the weak and the vulnerable, etc., that commends itself far more powerfully than any ab initio head trip theological argument. Do we have one, one more question, perhaps? Jonathan, yes. This will be our last question. Um, I'm listening to what you say, and partly as an Old Testament scholar, I'm aware that the, the way you read Joseph, for example, and his power as a good example of what God intended for creation, rather than perhaps as a bad example, uh, has been contested. The way you read Daniel, uh, uh, there's, there's some, some questions about whether the idea that Daniel and his friends taking part in Babylonian power um, was an option earlier and later was rejected as an option, mm -hmm. and that some of the later material in Daniel uh, is intentionally opposing that option. And so part of my question is, um, you began by saying we're not to run away from power, we're not to go back to the nursery, and then you, you ended with some of these examples that don't really sound like grasping power, they sound like being quite humble and weak witnesses and not really doing much, but but what if one of those humble and weak witnesses is asked to run for Senate, uh, is asked yeah, to run for president? Yeah, Can yeah. one actually move to a place of power without becoming unfaithful in, by doing so? And are, are there New Testament answers to this? And are there Old Testament answers to this? That um, have, have you thought about that? Because that's a, that's a question I have yeah. is for, because we live in such a powerful country, I, I kind of wish we weren't. But mm -hmm. because we live in such a powerful country, what we do seems to raise that question. Yeah, it, it does, and thanks, great question. I suspect that the deconstruction of Joseph and Daniel, etc., may owe more to um, a kind of post-Enlightenment liberal embarrassment that anyone of sense would ever go into that stuff. Um, I, think, I think in the ancient world, and I would say in the modern, if somebody who loves God and is determined to serve God is actually asked to do so or has the chance to do so in, in whatever sphere, they may well say, mm, this is going to be tough. I will need to get some friends around me who will pray for me and who will look me in the eye and tell me when I'm getting it wrong, when they think I'm getting it wrong. But um, what would we be saying if we said no? That, that Christians shouldn't do that and therefore you should give some of the most powerful positions to people who um, ex-hypothesi will not be Christians. Seems to me that's just a reductio ad absurdum. Um, so it's tough, but then actually all human life is tough. You know, being a husband, a father, a grandfather, believe me, is tough. Um, you know, th these are responsibilities and one should actually shudder before undertaking them, but no, they, they, are, they are gifts and we will get them wrong, but let's go for them. And likewise, running a business, running a ship or a shop or whatever it is, let's, let's do it and recognize we will get it wrong, but having the critique built in. That's why, you know, I pray every day, um, have mercy on me, a sinner, and why in the Lord's Prayer we pray every day, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Um, 
we, we, we never get to a point where, ah, now we've made it, we're in this job, so now all that we're going to do must be, must be okay. And ironically, it's when you get God out of the equation. Famously, Tony Blair's agent, Alistair Campbell, said uh, Downing Street doesn't do God. The result is if you push God out of the equation, you leave the messianic temptation wide open. And uh, I'm not sure it was entirely refused. Well, with that answer and its allusion to the Lord's Prayer, perhaps we can also remember that the Lord's Prayer enjoins us to pray regularly that God's kingdom may come on earth as it is in heaven. And that's a prayer I think we can all join in as we end our time today with a word of appreciation for Professor Wright and for all who've participated in this conversation.